If you have your Bible with you tonight, we are in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, 2 this evening, Matthew chapter 2, and I want to begin reading uh, in verses 1 to 3, and then we'll, we'll pick up from there and, and continue through that chapter, just highlighting a few verses. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, very familiar territory uh, to us. These are scriptures that we have known from childhood. You've heard them rehearsed time and time and time again at Christmas uh, services and children's nativity plays and, uh, and all of that kind of thing. So chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 7, then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coast thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Have you ever in your life experienced an overreaction? 
Has there ever been a time when you just completely lost it? You just went over the top, you know, uh, the red mist descended and before you knew it, you were blowing off steam and then after it all settled down, you looked back on it and thought, what in the world was I thinking? What was going on uh, with me there? You know, maybe sometimes we do that if we're out on the road. It's amazing how that when you surround a man with a box of metal and put wheels under it, he has a complete change of character and uh, some people just completely lose it on the road. Maybe you have experienced that perhaps in a, a shop setting where you felt you weren't getting good customer service and you became irate with a uh, shop clerk or some other person in the store. Or maybe it's uh, with your, your children. Uh, you know, you've just completely uh, overreacted to something that they've uh, done. Or maybe even just in an argument, you know, it's got heated and, and uh, you know, you've just, it's just got out of hand. And, and you have to ask, well, what goes on in a person's mind when they just explode like that, when they completely and utterly overreact. You know, maybe they've had some kind of breakdown. Maybe they've been under stress or pressure uh, emotionally. You know, maybe they're like a, a mother bear defending her cubs, feeling that they're going to lose something somehow. And, uh, you know, maybe if you're on the outside of that looking in, you just scratch your head and you wonder what's going on. Uh, a number of years ago, our family went on holiday uh, to Spain. And to salute. And as part of the family holiday, we went to the biggest theme park in Spain, Porta Ventura, with our children. And uh, we packed the lunch. You know, we spent a good part of the morning. We packed the lunch. We set out early. We arrived at the theme park on time. Uh, we got to the gates of the theme park. And the chap on the theme park, noticing our uh, lunch bag, uh, said to us, You can't come in. You can't bring that in here. And so, I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> but the red mist descended. And I said, why can't I bring it in? He says, you're not allowed to bring it into the park. And I said, why can't I bring it in? He says, health and safety reasons. I said, you think I can't eat my own food for health and safety reasons? And I got into an argument with him. And I became so incensed that he wouldn't let me in. Now, this was 10 o'clock in the morning that I said to my kids, right, sit down, we're having our lunch here. And my poor kids, <laughs> I'm looking at my wife, she's remembering this, it's a horror moment. And my poor kids, I made them all sit down and they got their sandwiches out and they ate their sandwiches right there and I made them do it. Point of principle. <laughs> and then, after they'd eaten their sandwiches and we ate everything in the lunchbox there was to eat, even though none of us were particularly hungry at that hour of the day, I went back to the gate and the fellow began to search through my lunchbox as if there might be a hidden Mars bar or something in there. And I just completely lost it. And I was an embarrassment to myself. I was an embarrassment to my kids. They, they're all adults now and they still talk about this most Christmases, much to my shame. Do you remember the day Daddy lost it at Porta Ventura? And uh, it's, just, it's just one of those horror moments in your life. And, and you know, when I look back at that, I think, why was I so incensed? Why was I so angry about something that was so trivial? And the only thing that I can think of was that that was a holiday that we paid for, but we couldn't really afford. And so when we got to the gates, you know, and he said, you can't come in with your food, all I could see was me having to pay top dollar prices for theme park meals and it was going to cost me an absolute fortune 
and I was just irritated that I was being forced to pay money that I didn't have in order to have a good time that I didn't want. You know, it wasn't right. I confess it wasn't right. It wasn't nice. It was sinful. It wasn't, certainly wasn't a Christian reaction. And we come to Matthew chapter 2 tonight and we read here of Herod's reaction at the news of Christ's arrival into the world. A talk of a newborn king. Now at first he, he, come, you know, he wants to kill the infant himself. And then he wants to kill every infant boy in the entire town of Bethlehem. You talk about an overreaction. You know we don't usually give a lot of thought uh, to Herod when we read this passage because we're often, most often, reading it at Christmas time and our focus is upon the birth of the Lord Jesus and upon his incarnation. And rightly so, he should be the focus of this text at that time. Uh, but nine times in this chapter is Herod mentioned by name. He's a major player in this chapter. He's a major player, <coughs> excuse me, in the nativity account. So what was going on here with this man? Why did he have such an extreme overreaction uh, to the thought of Jesus' birth? Well, there are several reasons I want to suggest to you tonight. And, and the first of this is this. He was concerned about his position. Herod was concerned about his position. You know, there are some terms that you hear and I hear that are just trigger terms. You hear those words and instantly you're agitated. In that moment, you're aggravated. And the term that triggered Herod is found in the second verse. When the wise men come into his court and they say, where is he that is born? Notice what they said, king of the Jews. Now let me tell you, as soon as Herod heard those words, his ears pricked up and his curiosity was Arrested. These men had his undivided attention. You see, as far as he was concerned, he was the king of the Jews. And you see, you look into history, and actually Herod is, we've got more history on Herod than we have any other uh, figure of, of the Roman times. More history on Herod than we have uh, on Julius Caesar or, or some of the other great Caesars. Uh, we know so much more about this man. And we know that he came to power in Judea in 40 BC. And he was set up by the Romans. He was a puppet king. And uh, yet with all, he didn't actually take control of that region until he first uh, removed some of his enemies from within Jerusalem. And so it's often dated that his reign began in 37 BC and he reigned until uh, 4 BC. Now throughout that time, Herod decided that he was going to build a name for himself. And build is the proper word because he began to launch into these massive uh, building projects. He, he built a place called Herodium uh, and uh, he had hanging gardens and all kinds of wonderful things there that uh, would indeed speak of his greatness. He, he built Masada, a fortress down on the uh, southwest coast of the Dead Sea. Many of you may have been there if you've ever been uh, to Israel. It's, a, it's an amazing site sitting on a, on a plateau 
overlooking the valley of the Dead Sea and, and you know, there's a winter palace there, there was synagogues there, there were storehouses there, there were uh, there was a garrison, there was um, barracks for troops there, there were all kinds of things that he built there. And all of this was intended to be left behind as a legacy. In fact, Herod himself only visited Masada, I think, once or twice. So I visited three times. I've been there more often than he was. He built Caesarea Philippi, an entire town on the coast of the Mediterranean, which he named after Caesar in order to curry favor with him. And he had a great amphitheater there. There was a, there's a, 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 a track for running chariot races. There's all kinds. He's got a swimming pool there, all kinds of stuff there. And he built the temple, or we should say he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. You know, the temple was built uh, in uh, 500, it was opened in 516 uh, B.C. by Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest after the people returned from exile in Babylon. But you know it wasn't much of a temple. They came back as captives. They had a little bit of money that Cyrus gave them. But they certainly didn't have the kind of money that Solomon could afford when he built the first temple. And so the second temple was really a, a, a shadow on the first temple. You know, It had nothing. It could hold nothing to the first temple. And actually when people saw it built many of them wept. Some of the people cried because it's simply didn't live up to their expectation. And when Herod became king in Judea, he looked at this rather pathetic temple, this poor excuse for a temple as he would have saw it, and he thought it didn't reflect his greatness. And so he began to work on this temple. 82 years they went building this temple, extending it and expanding it and making it look like a tremendous wonder of the world. In fact, it was said that when you saw this temple as you approached Jerusalem, you would have thought there was snow on the hill. It was so white and gleaming in the, in the midday sun. But by the time Jesus is born, Herod's life is drawing to a close. He's almost 70 years old. He's become mentally unstable. He's physically deceased. He's about to die. Now, and now here's the thing you need to know about, about Herod. Herod was a Jew. On his father's side, his, he was a Jew. His grandfather had converted to Judaism. He was raised a Jew. He practiced Judaism. Uh, he should have been as interested as anyone was in the thought of a coming uh, savior. Uh, he wasn't entirely ignorant of the scriptures. And when he calls the rabbis in to discuss this matter, uh, his curiosity really should have been piqued because, you know, the words of the, of the Magi should have got his attention and it did get his attention. But for all the all the wrong reasons. He didn't think to himself, well, maybe this is the Messiah that my grandfather was looking for, my father was looking for, that I've been looking for, that we've been looking for. No, all he heard was, King of the Jews. That's all he heard. King of the Jews. And he resented it. He resented it. You see, that was a title that was awarded to his father before him by Caesar. 
His father had been made king by, by Caesar and uh, Julius Caesar and had given him that title and that title had passed on to Herod and Herod was rather pleased with the title. He loved being called king of the Jews. In fact, he intended to pass that title on to one of his own sons. So, you know, when, when the Lord was born and these, these men come from afar and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? It was a threat to his position. He thought to himself, well, there's only one king of the Jews around here and that's me he was ill prepared to surrender his life to the rule of Christ and I wonder is that you tonight you know what is it about your life what is the one thing that you covet and guard and say well you know God can't have this area of my life this is mine this belongs to me and I don't care who Jesus is and what Jesus has done he's not He's not having entry into this particular uh, area. What is it that you're not willing to surrender to the rule of Christ? Let me tell you something. Whatever it is, it's simply not worth it. It's not worth it. You see, the presence of the Savior was a threat to Herod's position. And maybe that's true of you. You know, maybe if you say, you're thinking, well, if I come to Christ and if I trust in Christ and if I surrender my life to Christ, I'm going to lose out somehow. I'm going to maybe have to resign my job. You know, maybe you're in a job that is unethical or maybe you are unethical in your job. And you know that things are going to have to change. That if you come to Christ, things are going to have to change. I remember a young man in Dublin many years ago. He got a job just beforehand, uh, just before he'd gotten saved, he got a job, and he got a job in a curtain shop. And uh, he told the man who ran the shop that he had experience in that area, and that uh, he uh, he was well able to take care of customers and all the rest of it. But actually, he had never seen a curtain in his life, apart from the one he drew in his bedroom window. And so he got saved. And he was going to work each day and he, you know, he was messing up. He was getting measurements wrong and, and all the rest of it. And he, was, and he realized he was an embarrassment to himself. But most of all, he realized he was an embarrassment to the gospel. And he came home one day and he says to me, Pastor, what do you think I should do? Now, he's only saved a matter of a few days. And I says to him, I think you should do the right thing and go and tell your boss that you've no experience in measuring curtains or cutting curtains or any of the things that he requires you to do. I'm, I'm there saying his boss knew that anyway. And so he did. And he kept his job miraculously. I think the Lord honored him. Because he went in and told him that he was a Christian and he lied to him and he had no experience in that field. And, and his boss showed him a kindness and allowed him to stay. But sometimes people are fearful that if they come to Christ, it's going to alter things. That they're going to lose their job or lose their business in some way. There's going to be some big change. Maybe you're going to lose your position in society. Maybe you're no longer going to be able to be uh, the, the president at the, uh, at the club or, or, or to be a, a head of a wig in the the lodge or whatever it is. You know, Herod wasn't some wide-eyed despot necessarily who began killing babies in Bethlehem for no good reason. He heard this title, the King of the Jews, and the red mist descended and it threatened everything he held dear. And he said, I'm not having that. Maybe that's you tonight. Defending your little territory, your little kingdom. And you're saying Jesus isn't coming in. 
There's something else we see here in verses 7 and 8. We see not only Herod's position, but we see Herod's pretense. Say that then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. They probably had been traveling for the best part of two years. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now, you don't have to be a great theologian to work out that Herod was not serious about worshiping the Lord. His words, we know, were a deceit. Uh, His purpose was to deceive the wise men. Uh, And so he couches his deceit in religious terminology. He says, go and, you know, when you've worshipped him, come back and tell me where he is and I'll go and worship him uh, also. And, you know, there are lots of folks in churches who are just like Herod in that respect. You know, they have all the, all the terminology. They have all of the phraseology of Christianity. They, they know how to put on the show. They know how to, at least externally, walk the walk and give the appearance that they are somehow a, a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might call them hypocrites. Jesus calls them tares among the wheat. And here's the thing about tares. Tares are hard to distinguish from wheat. Look in Matthew chapter 13, if you will, for a moment. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Matthew 13, 24. We read another parable putting forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, does not thy sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he saith unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, and gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into his house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, God's children. But the terrors are the children of the wicked one, Satan's children who are pretending to be God's children. He says, The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the terrors are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You see, here's what the Lord Jesus is telling us. He's telling us that it's possible, even in our fellowship, it's possible that there are people sitting among us tonight 
Maybe even members of this church. Maybe even baptized folks. Uh, maybe folks who have come for a long time. It may be even that you are here week in and week out. Wednesday night. Every time the doors open you're here. But it's possible that you could be here. And despite the fact that you're giving off the impression that you're truly a Christian. And belong in our number. The truth of the matter is you've never been saved. Tragedy that is. You see, Herod thought he could uh, fool these wise men with his demeanor and his words. Oh, why don't you go and find the little fella? And when you find him, come on back and, and let me know where he is and, and I'll worship him also. You know, the wise men may have been fooled by Herod's words, but God wasn't fooled. God knows. He knows who is his and who is not. He knows your heart. Let me tell you something. God sees right through our Sunday best. God isn't moved by our nice clothes or our big Bible or any such thing. God sees us as we really are. He knows who's real and he knows who's faking it. You know, God can tell the truth from the false, the, the wheat from, this, from the terrors, and in the end, he's going to separate one from another. Here's the thing, you can only bluff it for so long. You know, you might fool the wise men among us. You might fool the, the elders, you might fool the deacons, you might fool the youth worker, you might uh, fool the Sunday school worker, or you might pull the eyes over uh, the wool over the eyes of your father or your mother or, or the pastor. You might fool any one of us or indeed all of us, but there's no fooling God. You can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool God any of the time. Who do you think you're who, who do you think you're playing with here? Do you really think you can outwit God? That you're smarter than God? That you can somehow, uh, 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 somehow or other um, trick him or, or somehow or other you know, convince him that you're the real thing when you're not? Listen, that's not going to happen. The Bible says this, some men's sins are open beforehand. You can see them. Some men's sins are going open beforehand, going before the judgment, and some men they follow after. There's some people, and you can look at them in society, and you can say, that fella is not a Christian, and he's certainly not going to heaven. And you know, that's the kind of fellow that's spoken of here. His sins are open hand, open beforehand. You can see he's going to judgment. Uh, but there are other people, and that's not so obvious. That's the terrors among the weak. And yet the Bible says that, that their sins will follow after. The book of Hebrews says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in God's sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees you. And there's nothing about you he doesn't know. And God knew exactly what Herod was up to. And despite his rather pious sounding statement there, in verse 8, the Lord was not duped. In the same way, he's not duped when people hide behind churchianity. You know, churchianity is, don't you? It's just playing the part. God sees through your words and your actions and he knows the genuine 
from the counterfeit. Are you so foolish to believe that you can outwit God? That you can make a fool of him? That you can hide from him under a cover of pretense? Hey, let me ask you an honest question tonight and see if you can give me an honest answer. Are you living a lie? Are you living a lie? Is your Christian profession a total shambles? Is it not what it appears to be? Are you being dishonest? Listen, God knows all about you. And you need to be saved. But then I want you to see in verse 11 and 12, Herod's pride. It says, and when they were come into the house, these wise men, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to her, they departed unto their own country another way. And then look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. Now, whilst the wise men and Joseph and Mary, along with the infant Jesus, are leaving town, Herod is having a late night at the palace in Jerusalem. The distance from Bethlehem to Jerusalem is just six miles. It's about a two-hour walk, maybe a little bit, it would certainly be a little bit shorter than that, quite a bit shorter if you were going on a camel ride. So Herod is waiting. He's waiting patiently for the swift return of these wise men. At the very most, it's going to take about five hours. Two hours to walk to Bethlehem, an hour or so at the side of the, uh, of the uh, Holy Family, and then, and, then, and, and then two hours returning back again. At that, the very most, five hours. Maybe less if they were traveling by camel. And he told them to go and to return, and he would pay homage to the new king also. So he waited. And he waited, and he waited some more. Where are they? If you've been in that position where you're waiting on somebody and they're just not coming, where are they? What's keeping them? He's probably looking out the window every five minutes. They should be coming now. Sending out a servant. Go and see if those fellows are coming back. And then the penny drops. There comes a moment when he realizes they're not coming back. And the Bible says that he felt like he was mocked. He saw that he was mocked of the wise men, that he was literally deceived, that he was tricked by them, that he was trifled with by them, that he was made to look like a fool uh, by them. Now, no one likes to look like a fool. And when we end up looking like a fool, we end up with egg in our faces. Well, the truth of the matter is, whether you're hurt or whether you're you or me, we all feel that that's a damage to our pride. It hurts our pride. And the Bible says that when Herod came to the conclusion that he had been made a fool of, he was exceeding wrath. The Greek word is timos. It's the same word that's used in Revelation 12, which speaks of Satan's fury against Israel. And he's, he's livid. He's, he enters into a demonic rage. The kind of anger that's expressed, and this is what the scriptures suggest here, by heavy breaths. I mean, he's virtually having a panic attack. <laughs> he's gunning for these people. 
And the Bible says, you know, when Herod was troubled there in verse 3, all Jerusalem's troubled with him. When Herod's mad, everybody's going to get it. When he's upset, everybody's going to feel the upset. And it's fitting that the scripture should use the word wrath, that same uh, term that is used for Satan's fury, because actually uh, his problem here is pride. And Satan's problem was pride. You know, in Isaiah chapter uh, 14, you read there of uh, Satan's fall. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. Listen to us a pride. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the Christ. I will be like the Most High. And this was, this was Herod. He's filled with demonic pride. He, he thinks he really is somebody. He's built all these buildings. He's extended this, uh, all this, these, this kingdom of his. He, he sees it as the, as the, very, uh, the very pinnacle of, of the best of Roman provincial rule. And now these fellows come from afar and mock him in his own backyard. You see, he had sought to deceive the wise men, but owing to God's revelation, they had deceived him. And friends, even kings reap what they sow. Listen to what the Bible says uh, concerning the end times. But evil men and seducers shall wax it worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, he was deceiving and he was in turn deceived. And he is livid that his plot has backfired, that he has been left looking like a fool. Now, a lot of our anger, honestly, is, is rooted in pride, uh, more than we probably would like to admit. Pride's a terrible sin. The Bible says these six things that the Lord hid, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And the first of those things is a pride look. And we've all seen that look. And, we, and if we're honest, you know, we all admit that times we've conveyed that look. Isaiah is told of the people to whom he would minister that the show of their countenance doth witness against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Now the sin of Sodom wasn't just sodomy. The sin of Sodom was also a sin of pride, according to Ezekiel 16. It's very significant that those who march down our streets heralding sodomy do so under the title pride. Pride. The Bible says there's a generation, oh how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. Hey, let me ask you this question. Does they, does when, when someone shares the gospel with you, do you resent it? Does it hurt your pride? Are you too good for the gospel? Are you too good for Christ? Too good for Jesus? Too good for his church? You know, some people are too good to be saved. You know, no one is too bad to be saved. The Lord can save the, from the uttermost to the uttermost. But understand this, some people are too good to be saved. And think of themselves as better than others. I want you to understand that we who have trusted in Christ are not saying by our professional faith that we're perfect. We're saying that we're forgiven. We're not saying we're better than you. 
We're acknowledging our sinfulness. And if you're saying, well, I don't need that. I'm better than that. That's just pride. You're just a sinner the same as everyone else is a sinner. Do you resent people speaking to you about Jesus? Do you lash out with your tongue? Do you say, I don't want to hear that? Don't talk to me about it. My friend, that's pride. The Bible says the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Some people are too proud for Jesus, too proud for heaven. They'd rather reject Christ and go to hell than to surrender their pride. Is your ego getting in the way of God? Now, when the God lists the six things that he hates and the seven that are an abomination unto him, the first is indeed pride. But listen to the next two. Proverbs 6 says this, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Herod was guilty of all three. We can imagine him with that proud look looking over his kingdom, surveying all of these wonderful palaces and uh, playgrounds that he had built and prepared for his legacy. And we see his lying tongue when he says, go and search diligently for the young child and, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may go and worship him also. It's a lying tongue. Oh, but the Bible adds hands that are shed, that are, that are swift to shed innocent blood. And you know, it's amazing how far people will go sometimes to shield themselves from the truth. The lengths to which they would go. Look in verse 16 again, and notice what Herod did. And I want you to see, think about Herod's plan. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired, of the wise man. Now we've already said that he had inherited this title, the king of the Jews, from his father, and he intended to pass it on to one of his sons. You know, in British history, we're all familiar with King Henry VIII and his difficulties, and his difficulty, of course, was that he couldn't have a son. He had six wives and, and no sons under which to uh, pass his legacy to have an heir. Uh, but Herod had the opposite problem. He had ten wives, all of them alive together, and from those ten wives he had fourteen sons by six of those wives. So his problem wasn't that he couldn't have an heir. His problem was, which son will be my heir? And Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, tells us how that within his family there was such competitiveness to ascend under the throne of Herod uh, that there was actually poisonings among some of his sons. And, and uh, Herod actually put three of his own sons to death on suspicion of treason. He puts to death his favorite wife uh, and then he kills his mother-in-law, her mother his household was filled with suspicion and mistrust and, and conspiracy and, and everybody was jockeying, jockeying with everyone else to take the throne. Caesar Augustus said of Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And it was a, it was a pun in Greek. Uh, the word for pig is huaros and son is huios. He says, I'd rather be his huaros than his weiros, than his weos. It was a clever play on words. 
And from Caesar's point of view, a pig was safer in Herod's home than his own children were, than his own sons were, because being a Jewish home, a pig was unlikely to be slaughtered in that, in that, on that property, but his children were likely to die. And so at this point in his life, Herod's life was driven by paranoia and obsession with his legacy. He knew that though he was a Jew, he wasn't Jewish enough for many of the people that lived in Jerusalem. And its citizens hated him as a servant of Rome. In fact, the word was that knowing he was nearing death, they were preparing a great celebration whenever news would come out that he had passed away. I don't know if you saw the the silly woman up in Scotland, up in the highlands of Scotland, after Queen Elizabeth died, uh, stood outside a chip shop that she ran and, uh, and opened a, a bottle of wine, and uh, a bottle of champagne rather, and celebrated the death of the queen. Well, that's what was going on here. Except it wasn't one foolish woman in some backwater in Scotland. It was a greater part of the city of Jerusalem were planning a celebration the day that the news was announced that King Herod the Great had passed away. And so it's against that background that the wise men come in to Herod's palace. You know, here he was. He's on his deathbed, so to speak. He knows that life is ebbing from him. He's trying to make up his mind who's going to be his successor. At one point he says it's going to be Antipas. Then he changes his mind and he gives it at the last last moment to Archelaus who's mentioned in the text as his successor and these wise men arrive in the midst of all of this and they say where is he that is born king of the Jews you see when we read this in nativity plays and we read this at Christmas it seems like such an innocuous statement it seems to have no threat whatsoever it seems to be celebratory but to Herod it was an absolute threat I don't want a king of the Jews I'm king of the Jews. That title resides with our family. I'm passing that on to my sons. He wasn't going to relinquish control. You see, Herod had a plan. A plan for his life and the life of his children. And here at the very last, he had determined that God wasn't going to mess with his plans. And that's why the presence of the baby Jesus disturbed him so much. And the same thing is true for people today. They don't want Christ as Lord of their lives. They don't want to surrender the reins of their life to him. They don't want Jesus messing with their plans. They want to do their own thing, go their own way, do what they want to do. Is that your position tonight? You don't want Jesus to be your saviour? Your Lord, your King. You say, well, I've got plans, Pastor. I've got things I want. I want to live a little bit before I become a Christian. Let me tell you, friend, you're not living, you're dying. Oh, Pastor, you don't know. I want to experience some of the world. Let me tell you something. The world will suck you in and spit you out. Say, how do you know? I can tell you. And lots of folks here will tell you the same thing. That's what it did with us. I've got plans. 
And Jesus doesn't factor into those plans. That's, what Her- that's where Herod was. And so in his rage, in his fury, in his insecurity, in his pride, in keeping with his character, he slaughters every infant boy in Bethlehem. You see, he had only just gathered together about a thousand Jews and he put them in a room and he had slaughtered all of those men so that he said, when I die, rather than the Jews of Jerusalem rejoicing over my death, they'll have something to cry about. Now he hears of the king of the Jews and these wise men comes in. Listen, there's a newborn king, the Messiah has come. And he says, I'll give you something to cry about also. And he slaughters every boy under the age of two in the city of Bethlehem. That was Herod. But notice verse 19. Five ominous words. But when Herod was dead. Let's just stop there. But when Herod was dead, here you read of Herod's passing. Friends, death ultimately removes every wicked leader from the earth. Hitler, (coughs) Stalin, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Robert Mugabe, someday Vladimir Putin. Every wicked leader ultimately gives up the ghost. And there is no question that Herod the Great was a wicked man. Did he reap what he had sown when he died? Well, of course he did. And I, I have to say to you as a pastor, I've you know, had the, the duty to spend time at the deathbeds of various people. And I've watched a lot of people die in my time. And it's never pleasant. But I've never witnessed a death like Herod's death. Here's what the historians write of it. The distemper seized upon his whole body and greatly disordered all its parts with various symptoms. For there was a gentle fever upon him and an intolerable itching over all the surface of his body, and continual pains in his colon, and dropsical tumors about his feet, and an inflammation of the abdomen, and a putrefaction of his privy member that produced worms. Besides which he had a difficulty of breathing upon him, and could not breathe but when he sat upright, and had a convulsion of all his members, insomuch that the diviners said those diseases were a punishment upon him for what he had done to the rabbis. That's those people that he locked in a room and destroyed. In other words, God caught up with this wicked old king. Despite his best efforts, he couldn't hold on to his position. Despite his best efforts, He had to change his plans. Despite his best efforts, he needed at the end to just surrender his pride. There was was no dignity in those those symptoms that you're reading there. He lost it all. Yes, he could build a, a hippodrome. Yes, he could build fortresses and palaces and temples. And yes, we might go to Israel today and look at those things lying in ruins and say, Herod the Great built this. But let me ask you this. Where do you think his soul is today? Where's his soul today? And if you could ask him right now, Herod, was it worth all the pride, all the anger, 
all the rage, all the upset, all the stress. What do you think he would say? He's gone down in history more infamous than famous. He's one of the villains of history. But listen, my friends, it's not just wicked old kings who God catches up with. Death will catch up with you. And you will die. And where will your soul be? Where will you spend eternity? The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Where will you spend eternity? You know, Herod thought the entry of Christ into the world would ruin him, would rob him of his position, would hurt his pride, would ruin his best laid plans for the future. And maybe you feel that way, that somehow by accepting Christ as your Savior, you lose, that by trusting Jesus, your life as you see it will be ruined. Friend, Christ didn't come to ruin your life. He came to redeem your life. He came to give you your life back. He came to give you abundance of life. What a fool Herod was to resist Jesus at his birth. Too proud to yield his title to him. But are you any less foolish when you refuse to yield your heart and life to him? Friends, God doesn't do business with proud men or proud women. Isaiah tells us that the Lord says, I, will dwell, I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of contrite ones. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to surrender your heart to Christ. Maybe you're listening online tonight and you need to surrender your heart to Christ. Will you admit your sinfulness, acknowledge your wrong, humble yourself before the Savior, admit your sin, turn from it, and say, Lord, be merciful unto me. Ask him to save you. His promise is that he will. O oh, friend, come to Christ tonight and be saved. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. We're going to rise together and sing.